As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording on Friday, September the 11th, 2020. And the Guantanamo Bay detention camp is now so old that the U.S. military has to educate the personnel there about the history of 9-11. Today on the program, All Elite Wrestling's pay-per-view buys. AEW just had another pay-per-view on Saturday, September 5th. How did it do? Plus, a Labor Day edition of your linear television viewership update. MLW is starting back up the long and winding road of WWE-CTE litigation appears to be over. More on the third-party controversy surrounding Vince McMahon's crackdown on platforms like Twitch and Cameo. Plus your questions, all that and more, coming up. But first... There were more firings at WWE this week. PW Insider's reporting today that more than 60 WWE employees, many of whom had already been furloughed, were let go this week, many of them working in live events. No wrestlers have been released at this point, but two producers have also been let go, Sarah Stock and longtime WWE road agent Mike Rotunda, better known to some as Erwin R. Scheister, also The Fiend's dad. Longtime employee Gerald Briscoe, publicly acknowledged his release, mentioning that Vince McMahon himself gave him the phone call. Jerry Briscoe most recently had been working as a talent scout for WWE. The nature of these layoffs further raises the question about the future of WWE live events and whether even in a post-pandemic future, WWE will ever return to running some 300 main roster live events per year, as it has in recent years. The big AEW business news this week, after their pay-per-view on Saturday, September 5th, All Out 2020. While nobody knows what the real final number will be for AEW's pay-per-view, there will be late buys coming in. Probably AEW itself won't know what the final number is for another 90 days or so. I believe the pay-per-view is going to end up doing about 90,000 pay-per-view buys. That is lower than what the Wrestling Observer Newsletter is reporting for an early estimate. 
And in fact, I think the observer reports of AEW pay-per-view buys are slightly high in all cases so far throughout the history of AEW. But the trends that the observers report, and I think, are generally accurate. So my belief for every AEW pay-per-view so far in the history of AEW, which is how many pay-per-views? One, two, three, four, five, six. This was the sixth pay-per-view in AEW history. We're not counting all in, which happened before the launch of AEW, which was not an AEW event, even though in many ways it's the beginning of what became AEW. But anyway, the first official AEW pay-per-view was Double or Nothing 2019. I believe that did about 98,000 buys, followed by All Out 2019 at about 88,000 buys. Full Gear in November doing 75,000 buys. Again, this is my estimate, my belief. Revolution in February doing 90,000 buys. And then Double or Nothing 2020 in May doing just over 100,000 buys. Let's say 105,000 buys. That's the peak. And then this all out in September 2020 doing 90,000 buys. So the Observer has most of those shows doing just over 100,000, uh, the lowest being described as 100,000 or slightly below, peaking with 115 to 120,000 buys for Double or Nothing 2020. So I think what's happening with the Observer is that Dave is using one or two variables that he thinks are uh, correct and accurate and extrapolating uh, relative impressions that he's being given from his sources onto the future AEW pay-per-view buy numbers. And I think some things that end up getting reported in the public about AEW's business end up being somewhat exaggerated over time. And then from there, viewership update this week, NXT running this week on Tuesday, again as it did last week, due to preemption on the USA Network from NHL Games. This is the fourth consecutive week that AEW and NXT have not run head-to-head. NXT was viewed by an average of 838,000 viewers. That is well in the neighborhood of what it had been doing the last four weeks when it's been not opposed head-to-head by AEW Dynamite. Key demo, a .22, which is the lowest uh, since it was last opposed by AEW Dynamite way back on August the 12th. But not far off what it had been doing the last four weeks, a .24, another .24, and then a .26 in each of the last three weeks. So decent viewership for NXT again, not opposed head-to-head by AEW uh, in the 800,000 viewer range. That's significantly higher than what it had been doing in the weeks that it was going head-to-head with AEW, where it had been doing somewhere in the 600,000 or 700,000 range for viewers. And with a key demo rating of somewhere between 0.16 and 0.22. AEW also not opposed, but on its usual time slot on Wednesday night on TNT, drew as it usually does compared to NXT a larger audience in every demo, except for those viewers who are age 50 or older. AEW this week viewed by over 1 million viewers, the highest that that program has done since way back on October 16th, the third ever episode of AEW Dynamite, still riding that high wave it was on from the debut episode, back when it did 1.4 million viewers, and a key demo rating of 0.37. That's the highest since a 0.38 on January 
15th. And remember, every episode of Dynamite, except for the last four, have run head-to-head with NXT. And in fact, some of these episodes are running head-to-head with a replay of NXT on uh, Sci-Fi. Last week's SmackDown on Fox. This week's SmackDown on Fox happening, as usual, right now, as I record. But last week's SmackDown on Fox still keeping its head above 2 million viewers, doing about 2.1 million viewers on September the 4th. But WWE Monday Night Raw on Labor Day, this past Monday, back down to a pre-Thunderdome number of 1.7 million viewers, 0.48 in the key demo. Raw is often challenged on Monday holidays that it often falls on. The last two years, though, Labor Day didn't have that much of an effect compared to the median of the four weeks prior this week down 5% compared to the four weeks prior. 2019, it was only down 1% compared to the four weeks prior. Year before that, 2018, up 1% in the same comparison. But this year is on par with the effects of Labor Day from 2017 and 2016. And who can forget the 2015 Labor Day effect where the rating took an 11% hit. But you know what Labor Day means in the world of Monday Night Raw? That means that the NFL is coming next. That's right, Monday Night Football returns next week. The doubleheader as usual to begin the Monday Night Football season. And then WWE Raw goes head-to-head with Monday Night Football every week for the rest of the year. So let's try to sort something out here about the, uh, the commonly assumed wrestling mythos. What we always hear is that when Monday Night Football comes, watch out because it, it takes a hit. It takes a bite out of Monday Night Raw. And that seems to be unbelievable. It is, it is relatively true. Uh, but how, how true is it? Is it a big deal? It is, a, is it a smaller deal than some people seem to make it out to be? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the other day, I sat down and went through all the data from Monday Night Raw that I have on hand. And I found uh, the, all of the NFL schedules so I could know when, did, when was the first Monday Night Football game. When was the last Monday Night Football game? And let's look and see what effect uh, Monday Night Football had on Monday Night Raw. For every year that we have, well, we have data for basically every year. We don't have complete data for every year, uh, the early years. So, like, we don't have complete data for every Monday Night Raw episode that ever happened for years like 1993 and 1994. But I do have data for some 1,300 episodes of Monday Night Raw, about a quarter of them going head-to-head with Monday Night Football. So I went into the spreadsheets, and I did an analysis. With the data accumulated, I asked the data a question. I said data. Data with its challenges notwithstanding, often a more easy-to-deal-with customer than human beings. I said data. Data, tell me, what's the median, median viewership for Monday Night Raw in the four weeks prior to the first game of Monday Night Football? for each and every year. And the data gave me a column of answers. And I said, okay, data, tell me the median viewership for Monday Night Raw for the four weeks, the first four weeks of Raw against Monday Night Football. And the data gave me another column of answers. And then I said, okay, let's take these two columns and tell me what's the difference between these two columns in terms of a percent. And what we find for the last five years, we get a pretty consistent result. The last five years, Monday Night Football coincides 
We can't say it causes. That would be too presumptive. But it coincides with, at worst, a 15% hit. At best, a 11% hit. So not a ton of variants here. Last five years are as follows. An 11% hit. 13%, 11%, 15%, 13%. Pretty consistent. But why median, you ask? Because median, as opposed to average in this case, especially when we're only going to deal with four values, median's a better choice here because it prevents the numbers from that are being compared from being skewed by a very high or very low number, which might happen if we're dealing with just the average, or if we're dealing with like a really low number that happened on Labor Day which very well may be the case. So I know you had no doubt, but it is true. It is verifiable. Monday Night Football can be expected to take about a 10% bite out of Monday Night Raw. Now, what's that going to mean for Monday Night Raw here in the year of 2020? The median this year, 1.8 million viewers in the four weeks leading up to Monday Night Football. If that number takes just a 10% hit, then we're down to 1.6 million viewers. Not an all-time record low. The all-time record low in P2 Plus total audience right now as it stands. The record low is 1.56 million viewers set on July 13th of this year. Again, a 10% hit would be 1.63 million viewers. Just above the record low. But a 15% hit would bring the total viewership down to 1.54 million viewers which would be a new record low. So I think we'll be seeing that sometime, if not in September, and probably by October. That would be my bold prediction. A new record low will be set multiple times in the course of this NFL season. But maybe there's hope for Raw. The opening day on Thursday night of the NFL season was down 12% from the opening day last year. Still a massive audience of 19 million viewers watching the Houston Texans and Kansas City Chiefs on NBC. So here's just the the honest truth. Here's the deal. Um, Most wrestling reporting sucks, with some exceptions. There are a lot of people out there who are worth listening to and who are worth reading. And a lot of people who basically, I think, act like scouts for uh, uh, other areas of wrestling that I just don't have time to pay attention to. Other than that, there's a lot of bad wrestling news coverage out there. It's not there to inform you. It's there to get you to pay attention to it as we sink deeper and deeper into this horrible attention economy that we live in, in the digital age. And there's not much of a way out of it except for by the sheer force and apparent financial stupidity of doing something like what I'm doing here, which is to do all this for free, to not put ads around it, and to do it for the purpose of learning and for helping other people be informed and understand the business. So just in other words, the the normal wrestling media universe is not incentivized to inform you or to do good analysis or to try to help you unpack and understand the various wrestling business issues. They are incentivized to make you pay attention. It's kind of like fast food. It's there to attract you. It's not there to nourish you. And basically, I'm not interested in being a part of that. I'm interested in doing what I'm doing. I'm going to do it regardless. I'm going to do it for Anybody who wants to consume this stuff on the free platforms that, th- that this exists on, whether it's this podcast or the writing that is there for free at WrestleNomics.com, I'm going to do this stuff. If you 
value this stuff uh, that much and you have a few uh, extra dollars in your pocket, you can go to patreon.com slash WrestleNomics and you can support $5 a month. I'll use your funds to good use. Uh, it'll help me buy better equipment, better software, better web hosting, and so on, and make what I do here at WrestleNomics even better. So that's my Patreon pitch for the week. Again, if you were a WrestleNomics patron in 2018 and you have not deleted your pledge yet, you will be renewed beginning October 1st if you don't wish to. Delete your pledge. Delete it as soon as possible. If you do get charged and you didn't get this message and you got charged and you didn't want to get charged, just send me a message on the Patreon, on Twitter, and I will refund you. But if you do want to support, again, go to patreon.com slash And then from there, last week we talked about WWE's response to many of its wrestlers using third-party services to generate revenue like Twitch and Cameo and maybe even YouTube. That was just breaking as uh, I was recording last week at this time. And uh, Andrew Yang was just tweeting as I was recording at this time. And since then, we have a couple of WWE statements. We have some comments from people like AJ Styles, and we have Additional comments from Andrew Yang, who seems to think that there's a good chance he may be the Secretary of Labor by January. So anyway, WWE on Saturday put out a statement. Of course, all this action with uh, with the Wrestling Inc. report uh, detailing what happened on the conference call where Vince McMahon said that people need to stop uh, doing work with third parties like Twitch and Cameo within 30 days, otherwise they're going to be penalized and perhaps fired. Uh, Wrestling Inc. put out that report. And then WWE put out uh, that that was on Friday. Andrew Yang's tweets were on Friday night. WWE put out its own statement related to this story on Saturday. The statement reads, Much like Disney and Warner Brothers, WWE creates, promotes, and invests in its intellectual property, i.e. the stage names of performers like The Fiend Bray Wyatt, Roman Reigns, Big E, and Braun Strowman. It is the control and exploitation of these characters. Yes, it really says exploitation. It is the control and exploitation of these characters that allows WWE to drive revenue, which in turn enables the company to compensate performers at the highest levels in the sports entertainment industry. Notwithstanding the contractual language, it is imperative for the success of our company to protect our greatest assets and establish partnerships with third parties on a company-wide basis rather than at the individual level, which as a result will provide more value for all involved. That's the end of the statement. So uh, I think it... it <clears throat> so that seems to be pointing to uh, what I speculated this was about last week, that WB wants to make uh, a wider deal for the company itself. Uh, WB probably wants to do something like virtual meet and greets here in the covid Days where you can't really get in in a person with people, but you can sure have a video call with them. And what value is there in trying to make a deal like that when you already have your own talent out there doing cameo videos and doing Twitch streams and things of that nature? Maybe WWE wants to do a deal with with Twitch or with Cameo themselves. Okay, but there's one part of this that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, let's take uh, part of that last sentence where W's statement reads, It is imperative for the success of our company to protect our greatest assets and establish partnerships with third parties on a company-wide basis rather than at the individual level, 
which as a result will provide more value, more value for all involved, more value for all involved. That's interesting. That doesn't make sense to me because how if, so if I'm a pro, a platform like Twitch or like Cameo, I, a company wide deal is appealing to me if I can sort of buy in bulk and I can get uh, the entire WWE universe, the entire group of WWE personalities uh, in bulk at a cheaper rate than I could pay to compensate them individually. And if I am paying less for them individually, or rather less for them altogether, less for the entire package, how is it that WWE is going to get a piece of that and the wrestlers are going to get a bigger piece of that than they had when they had individual deals, if you will. You know, so so let's say if if I'm Twitch and uh, to compensate all of the wrestlers who are currently using Twitch, let's say I'm paying them a thousand dollars just to pick a random and unrealistic number. I'm paying them all a thousand dollars for all of the individual wrestlers who are currently using the platform. Okay, but WWE wants to make a deal with me, uh, and oh, it's appealing to, for me to make a deal because it'll it'll save me money. Oh, instead of paying a thousand dollars, well, they're they're offering me a great deal that I only have to pay. $800 for. I saved $200. Well, now WWE is getting compensated $800 and they're going to share that revenue with the, with the wrestlers. Well, there's $800 here. WWE is going to take a cut for itself. And now there's even less than $800 left to go around to split up among all the individuals who are on the platform. Whereas before there was $1,000 that WWE didn't ha- or that the wrestlers didn't have to share with WWE. So how's this more value for the individuals. It, that doesn't make sense. But anyway, AJ Styles on his Twitch stream on Tuesday says that, don't worry, everybody just calm down. Um, so, let's, let's go over what I think streaming, uh, YouTube, I think we're going to be okay. COVID, I had it a while back. And for, and for those who wondered, did he quarantine yourself? Listen, yes, I went down to my basement. Did I? Can I keep everybody away from me at all times as far as my own family that lives in the same house with me? Impossible. Impossible. So calm down. As far as I can tell, he talks a lot more about uh, COVID than he did about the issues with video streaming. And there's also a comment in there about WWE is not the bad guy, despite what you read in the dirt sheets. According to Dave Meltzer of the dirt sheets, Dave says there was a meeting at raw on Monday where it was clarified that wrestlers will be able to use YouTube and Twitch, but would have to do so using their real names and not their WWE ring names. And that they would have to inform the company of YouTube and Twitch accounts that are using their real names. I guess so WWE can keep track of it. According to Dave Meltzer, uh, nothing was made clear of exactly what wouldn't be allowed, although the belief was that Cameo wouldn't be allowed. Meltzer was told that directions on that were vague. Then Thursday, an interview with Andrew Yang, the former U.S. presidential candidate, it appeared uh, on Chris Van Vlay's YouTube channel, where Yang reinforced his tweets that he made on Friday about WWE's labor practices. I actually got a message from uh, from someone uh, who was part of the WWE pointing out to me the story about how 
WWE was saying, hey, don't go on Cameo or Twitch. Uh, and it infuriated me because I know that the WWE has been trying to play it both ways for years where they're saying on one hand, can't do anything without our say-so. You, We own you, but you're an independent contractor and we have nothing to do with your health, retirement, um, uh, any of the benefits you'd get that would accrue to an employee. So to me, you, you have to make a choice at some point. If you're going to control all these aspects of a, a wrestler or performer's waking life, then you should take some responsibility, too, for that person. Uh, bigger picture. Maybe like if they have a kid, maybe they get some uh, maternity or paternity leave. You know, Maybe they get an off-season. Maybe they get recovery time. Uh, and I say this as someone who's been a longtime fan of the sport. I know you know a lot of the performers well yourself. Yeah. Uh, they're putting their lives on the line or their health on the line, their family life on the line all the time. They've made Vince a billionaire. Uh, and then the fact that he's still being so heavy handed about their ability to make a simple buck on cameo just struck me as so absurd and ridiculous and wrong. So there's Yang sort of reiterating his objection to the issue around W objecting to their wrestlers' use of third-party platforms. But then they get into, I think, a really interesting issue, sort of about identity and names as it relates to the wrestling industry and whether that's intellectual property and what a wrestler should be able to do with the name that they use in the ring. Take advantage of it. it like, uh, it'd be if you, Chris, somehow were... Uh, in a movie and then all of a sudden you weren't allowed to turn around <laughs> and do anything as yourself right uh so so i think that the comparison is not very apt uh in large part because the treatment is so uh, uh is so uh again it, it's so dissonant because on one hand you're saying look we have no responsibility for you but on the other hand uh, we control your very image, your name in some cases, uh, and you can't do anything without our say-so. Uh, it, it, in a, a way, it's actually inhuman. It's dehumanizing. It's saying, like, look, you are no longer a human being. You are this character. Uh, and I remember one of the pieces of evidence, this will show what a fan I am, uh, of how off Big Vince is. Is you remember when he busted out like the fake Razor Ramon and the fake Diesel? Of course, when, uh, yeah. Scott Hall and Kevin Nash went to yeah. But, like that. That's literally how he thinks about it. It's like I made you. I invented you. It's like actually they're two dudes. <laughs> they're walking around. They work for your competitor, and no one cares about these new fake characters that you're uh, <laughs> you know you're, you're coming up with. Like, like without. And this is where I think wrestling again. Uh, I want to apply one of the core tenets of my wrestling philosophy that wrestling inhabits this weird space between sport and scripted entertainment. And I've applied this to, to the way that wrestling behaves in terms of being live sports content and the way it's held up or not held up in ratings. And I think it applies here in terms of names and identity. And let's be clear first, before we get any further, I'm not talking about legality. Um, you know, a great many things can be legal that are not just or fair. So in this interview, they make these analogies about how if, you know, if there was an actress who played uh, a character in Beauty and the Beast, and, and, and then the, this actress was, was then limited thereafter for uh, when it came to doing certain uh, personal appearance businesses. Um, they make the analogy about how Chris Hemsworth, nobody thinks of him as Thor. 
And I think that's that gets to the point. Um, but in wrestling, uh, nobody knows who Alan Jones is, and nobody knows who Phil Brooks is. People listening to this podcast pro- probably do know who I'm referring to. But far more people know who AJ Styles is and know who CM Punk is. And there aren't credits that roll at the end of every episode of Raw or SmackDown that tell you who the actors are who are playing certain roles. When you're a wrestler, you play one role over and over again, and you don't transition into other roles. You know, the movie doesn't end. Your character is permanent. You might at various times throughout your career change your name, but that name change thereafter is permanent. It is the name that you are known best as to the public. So to apply, it makes sense, right, that, let's use another analogy here. It makes sense, I guess, that James Earl Jones can't just dress up as Darth Vader and go around to uh, Star Wars conventions or whatever without giving whoever Lucasfilms or Disney, whoever owns the Star Wars intellectual property at at this point, without giving that entity uh, a licensing fee at the very least. That makes a lot more sense. But if James Earl Jones had only ever played Darth Vader and had done so on an ongoing basis and had not played any other roles, and in fact, at the end of every movie or TV show, there were no credits to roll in which his name was published, his real name, that would be a more apt comparison to what uh, a pro wrestler's identity is like. And this is all wrapped up in, in the... In the the fact that you know pro wrestling, uh, at one point definitely was trying to present itself as real. As this is a real sport, and these are these real people's names. That's the only names that they go by. Um, and that's changed somewhat over time to the present. But we still have these habits. And I don't. I'm not saying that there should be credits at the end of every wrestling TV show. I don't know. But this this is another uh, example about why I think pro wrestling is not a genre of. TV. It is not uh, a scripted entertainment. It is predetermined and you can try to script it, but it is not enough like scripted entertainment for certain analogies to hold up. I think pro wrestling is not a genre. It is a medium unto itself. And this, this issue of identity and names is just another reason why I think that it is best understood as its own medium. Now, the legal issue around this is separate. It's a different issue, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm certainly not an IP lawyer. I don't think Andrew Yang is either, but there are people out there who say, well, to have their their names used like this, that's what they signed up for. If they're upset about it, they should have read their contract. Too bad. No sympathy. And and this is Andrew Yang's response to, to that objection. Well, one... I heard from a former who's not happy with this particular uh, clarification or, or this particular the rule. Um, but the truth of it is that there's a vastly uneven bargaining table at work where if you're a performer and WWE says, hey, here's this contract and we're going to stick a bunch of things in it that you think are unfair or ridiculous or exploitative. At the end of the day, you feel like you have no choice but to sign that deal because yeah. WWE holds the keys to the kingdom. You know, they are the largest company, they're the surest means to elevate your career, uh, and there hasn't been a genuinely competitive market. 
for years. It's one reason why I, like many other fans, naturally root for AEW to succeed and create a genuine uh, competitive market so that wrestlers don't get exploited. But the reality is that WWE is a quasi-opoly and imagining that these wrestlers, oh, they know what they got into. It's like, well, they didn't really have a genuine uh, chance to negotiate a bargain. In other words, Yang is saying that WWE certainly since 2001 has been the only big global company in the wrestling industry, by far the biggest one in the United States. I think they're able to gain additional leverage because a lot of the wrestlers, most of them probably, maybe almost all of them, see WWE as their dream, their dream job. And while everybody on the main roster at least is paid very well, probably well over six figures, the top names making millions per year, I think WWE is able to take advantage of the fact that they're wrestlers. This is their dream job, and there is no other alternative. And those wrestlers are willing to sign contracts that, in some ways, are not favorable to them. And if you are a wrestler for whom being in, at, in the main event of WrestleMania is your dream, then what's the alternative? And by the way, all these wrestlers are in competition with each other. They're all competing for the top spots. Everybody wants to be in a, a higher spot if they're not in the top spot. They all want to be in the, in the main event of WrestleMania. They cultivate a culture, in fact, that is familiar with the sort of aphorism, I think it was set forth by Steve Austin, that, well, if you're not here to be the champion or to main event WrestleMania, you shouldn't have the job. You should want to be at the very top or nothing else. So you got this company that, until last year or so, has not had any strong competition. This company that has a an environment where the wrestlers are highly competitive with each other, and are already pretty well paid. You know, I, I'm skeptical how this group of wrestlers in that situation are going to band together and organize and unionize, even though it would be in their collective interest. While it is in their collective interest to do so, it is sort of paradoxically in your individual interest to be one of those who doesn't go along with it and thereby gets to win favor with the company leadership that's going to decide what your spot on the card is. And I guess until something in that dynamic changes, I don't think there will be a wrestling union. Uh, As to the misclassification issue around wrestlers being classified as independent contractors, when in reality they are treated as employees, maybe that's something that a future administration will investigate. Your emails are next after this. Fans would be surprised to know about life on the road for a WWE superstar. Oh man, it's not pretty. No? It's hard. The hardest part is literally the drives afterwards. Like, we'll have four hour drives, five hour drives. Sometimes it's in the sketchiest towns when there's literally nothing and you're afraid you're going to run out of gas, which does happen. No. Yes. You've run out of gas. I haven't run out of gas. Which, it's gotten very, very, very close where I have to take my foot off the pedal. The last oh, time you're happened, driving yourself. Oh, yeah, we drive we ourselves. You don't have, like, a driver? No. What? Yeah, we drive ourselves. We get our own rental cars and we drive ourselves. 
You get a rental car. Yes. How do you expect us to get around to these towns and entertain our people? You're superstars. I feel like after the show, there's like, here's your driver. Get in. You've had a hard day of work. We'll drive you. Well, no. With I a mean, full tank of gas. We do it five days a week, so they can't do that for 30 superstars five days a week. I don't know. I think they make a lot of money off of you guys. I think so, too. But, you know, they take care of us for most Do you want me to negotiate things? your guys' new CBA? Um, do you have a CBA? No, but... Let's go. make one. Okay. You know what? <laughs> No, you know, things like this, we can we they work around it, but okay, it, it's fun though. It does become fun because yeah. you get to connect with you know whoever you travel with, and there's memories that you won't have with anybody else, and it becomes like a real family, sisterhood, or brotherhood. That's WWE superstar Bailey in 2019 in an interview with Christine Leahy for the FS1 show. Fair game. And now your questions, the always intelligent questions from the WrestleNomics listeners. Did you know WrestleNomics has a disproportionately intelligent and well-educated audience? You can email your questions to Brandon at WrestleNomics.com and I will do my best to answer them on the air. I will say, and I think I'm about to walk into this very situation, that some of the questions uh, I wish I had Uh, better answers for sometimes some questions require weeks of research to answer that notwithstanding edward writes how well is AEW doing financially and secondly also do you know how much money anthem is losing on impact running with no fans so so my short answer to both of those questions is not a clue but let's see if i can shed some light on how we might begin to answer questions like that. Um, thank you, Edward, for the very good questions that I'm sure many people are interested, including myself, to know the answer to. Uh, AEW, according to Dave, AEW is profitable this year because of the new TV deal it received at the beginning of this year. Its TV deal with Warner Media was renewed. Previously, AEW was reported to be receiving an ad revenue share and was getting compensated the cost of producing Dynamite. That was upgraded now to a three-year deal with an additional one-year option with an average annual value of just under $45 million. So, according to Dave, again, Dave Meltzer, that uh, AEW has become profitable with this year. I don't know if that's a, that's a statement that is still uh, correct in the, in the COVID era that we're in here. Although there are some cost savings associated with COVID because now you're just running every week at Daly's Place instead of touring around, which is much more expensive. And which I don't think is uh, offset by the ticket revenue that would be gained in a normal year with normal live events. I don't think AEW would, would be doing house shows if there was no pandemic. I think they would just still be doing their weekly TV show and pay-per-views. And those would be basically their only events. There, there is a, a lack of venue merchandise revenue as a result because you're not drawing a few thousand people to a venue every week and selling merchandise to them. Uh, AEW is selling merchandise now at Daly's Place with the limited uh, ticket sales that they're doing. By the way, reportedly, according to the Observer, you know, running weekly, selling a few hundred tickets at limited capacity. I think Dave, without looking it up, reported that the ticket prices were about $50. Uh, AEW now not selling out. Uh, that limited capacity. 
uh, which they had uh, the first few times they opened the limited capacity. But AEW, other revenue streams, what other revenue streams would we have to work on making an estimate of to get an idea of how much revenue AEW is bringing in? And by the way, revenue would be the easier project for me to unpack. The harder one would be the expenses. But I will say, I think I it would be, and uh, this is something I will try to do before the end of the year or more, sort of around the end of the year. I think a good project would be trying to do a financial estimate of what every major wrestling company made in the year. Obviously, in the case of WWE, that's just a matter of reported fact. Uh, in the case of New Japan, I expect we will get some some detail on that. Bushy Road won't break it out, probably, but we do seem to get some report of that, nonetheless. But the biggest revenue stream for AEW, I strongly believe, is their TV revenue that they get from... Various regions, but most uh, importantly, they get the TV revenue from Warner uh, Media in the U.S. for being broadcast on TNT. Average annual value over the course of a lifetime of the deal is $45 million, so that's probably escalating over time, starting somewhere below $45 million and exceeding $45 million in the final year. So I would guess in, uh, in 2020, somewhere in the mid to high $30 million range for the annual TV revenue just from the U.S. Now, AEW also has deals in the U.K. Uh, with Sky and with ITV. I have no sense of how to begin to deal with that. I, I believe WWE's U.K. TV deal, most recently when it was on Sky, was somewhere in the neighborhood of $30 million annually. I would imagine AEW's deal is substantially less. To take a total stab in the dark, let's say $15 million. I don't know, that seems high. Let's say 10 million. So let's say 35 for US this year, 10 for the UK. They have some other deals in Europe, including Sky in Italy, a number of other deals through Warner Media Partners internationally. Let's say all of that on an annual basis adds up to $4 million. So we're going 35 US, 10 UK, 4 everywhere else. After that, biggest revenue source in the US or for AW will be pay-per-view. Pay-per-view, as I understand, is incredibly complex because you have all... You don't just have... Uh, you don't just take the number of buys for a given pay-per-view and then split it, um, say, by 40 or 50 or 60%. There are a number of pay-per-view deals throughout the world that complicate. There's, there's the digital deal. There's the traditional TV deal. So things get complex, and it's not all the same set of deals for each pay-per-view. It, 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 it just changes from pay-per-view to pay-per-view but i would estimate about ninety-five thousand pay-per-views per pay-per-view for pay-per-views that equals uh three hundred and eighty thousand buys and the price points across the world are different it's fifty dollars for us in the u.s but it's different prices in different regions to take a total stab in the dark let's say the average net revenue that's after the split per pay-per-view buy let's say fifteen dollars is that too low? Maybe 20? All right, let's go 17. So 380,000 buys times $17 in net revenue. That gets me to about $6.5 million in pay-per-view revenue. Uh, events are obviously limited. Let's see. You've got about 11 events before the pandemic, including one pay-per-view. I luckily do have a spreadsheet for this with a total attendance pre-pandemic 2020. 39,300, 
where do you want to go with an average ticket price is the question there. Main roster, uh, W's main roster, North American average ticket price in 2019 was $67,000. I'm sorry, $67. Now let's do North America though, $64. I think AEW is a little bit less than that. Let's go 58. That gives me about $2.3 million in event revenue per capita. That's uh, not even half a million dollars. All right, that's $429,000, rather. But then there's online merch, and apparently online merch, at least in WWE's case, uh, really overperformed in Q2 in this pandemic era, sort of compensating for the lack of venue merch. WWE did over 600,000 online merchandise orders in 2019 with an average order price of $47. I think maybe a... A good thought experiment here is to think about how many shirts per week is AEW selling online. And even that is hard for me to figure. I could see it being anywhere between the low hundreds. I guess I think it's somewhere in the hundreds. I don't know. Let's go. And taking into account that, that uh, maybe online merch is going to overperform and somewhat compensate for the lack of venue merch. Let's go 500 a week. So 500 Per week, all of these shirts that show up on Shop AEW look to be $25. So $25 times 500 is 12,500 times 52 weeks is 650,000. Just an over half million, less than a million in, in, in online merch. That seems low. Maybe there's other stuff in there. Let's go 750. 750. Now, what other revenue streams are there? AEW has a licensing deal, at least one that I know of, for action figures with a company called Jazzwares Inc. Walmart is now carrying action figures uh, for AEW. You will not, however, find Walmart advertising on AEW programming because Walmart does not advertise on violent content. That notwithstanding, I have no idea how much that deal is worth. Uh, with Jazzwares, I will guess half a million for the year. Let's think about the the post-COVID ticket sales. So let's say September, October, November, December, four months of these limited, let's just assume that the rest of the year is going to be limited capacity. And let's assume average average attendance at limited capacity is 300 times the average ticket price. Let's say maybe they even have to, to lower ticket prices. Let's say average ticket price ends up around $40. Okay. We end up with about an additional $200,000 in pandemic ticket sales. That means we got about 5,000 attendees generating $11 in merch money per capita, an additional $57,000 in venue merch. And let's throw another million at things I'm not considering. Maybe there's ad revenue share still that I'm not accounting for. Maybe I'm underestimating online merch sales. There are definitely sponsorships that I'm not thinking of. So I end up, when you add all of that up, again, we've got $35 million in a U.S. TV deal, $10 million in a U.K. TV deal, $4 million in other TV deals in, in the uh, world, $6.5 million in pay-per-view revenue, $2.3 million pre-pandemic event revenue, about a half a million in venue merch pre-pandemic, uh, about three quarters of a million in online merch, about a half million in toy license, another 200,000 in pandemic uh, tickets, get tickets to the pandemic, and uh, another $57,000 in pandemic venue merch, 
$1 million towards other things I'm overlooking, and I get about a total of $61 million in revenue, which doesn't sound that unreasonable. Compare that to New Japan, which we know generated $51 million in revenue in fiscal year 2019, $46 million before that. That would be just under AEW. Mind you, New Japan doesn't have media revenue like any US, any like AEW does or WWE does. The biggest piece of New Japan's revenue comes from events. In fact, merchandise sales are probably bigger for New Japan than their media sales. Even uh, all media include TV deals and New Japan World and all of that. So $61 million in annual revenue. That's my back-of-the-envelope estimate for AEW. $61 million, 2020. Would be higher if there wasn't a pandemic. There'd be more ticket revenue. There'd be more expense, though, too. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to try to tackle this today. But the, the question is, if you're asking whether uh, AEW is profitable, you got to consider... Um, so do you think it costs more or less than $61 million to operate all elite wrestling in 2020? And they might be profitable at that, at that level of revenue, but I'll deal with that later in the year. Uh, Edward's other question, which I'm afraid my fault, I, we're getting pretty late here in the WrestleMongs headquarters uh, about impact. How much money is Anthem losing on impact running? Every week, I, I would think uh, Anthem probably views the cost to, to run Impact in empty arenas as, or that, that empty studio in Nashville as uh, a loss leader, uh, the cost of producing content. And I would guess that uh, Impact on Access, which we know to be doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 viewers weekly, probably one of the most viewed, if not the most viewed program on Access, uh, that's probably uh, whatever they're paying for it, which is probably costing them far less than, for example, what WWE was even paying for at the Performance Center because you probably got lower payroll. You certainly have lower payroll costs. Uh, you probably have lower production costs than the Performance Center or whatever that was. You are also running in a fixed location, so there isn't load-in, load-out for Anthem. And it might not be that bad uh, of, of an expense that you're paying for in order to create the content, which is probably pretty valuable to you if you're Anthem. And you've just purchased this access. And if Impact is one of your best shows, it might not be that bad. Wrestling is pretty cheap relative to other kinds of programming. And I wouldn't look at it as a as another existential threat for the Impact Wrestling brand. Um, it's I wouldn't look at it like, oh wow, they're just bleeding money. And it's threatening Impact's existence. I think they're probably doing okay and their parent company is probably okay with the amount of expense that it's costing them to run through covid so thanks edward for the questions the next question from doug there was widespread widespread speculation that AEW suffered from visa issues in the company's early history do you have any insight into the visa process that must go through that the company i think that the company must go through the costs the timetable have visa issuing agencies grinded to a halt during covid that's something I really don't know. I guess I, I could ask. Uh, I think what's happening with travel restrictions has more to do with travel restrictions related to uh, the disease. Although I do believe, as you mentioned, that AEW had problems obtaining working visas for its talent earlier in its history. Now, I guess maybe just by virtue of being a newer company and a company that uh, the immigration office wasn't familiar with yet. You know, the immigration office wants to see all sorts of proof 
and publications that prove that this person really is the wrestler that they say they are. So I think that's about as well as I can under or I can answer that question right now. So thanks again for the questions. If you want to send your questions to be read in a future episode, like next week, you can email them to Brandon at WrestleNomics.com. The CTE lawsuit has ended. The appeals court has upheld the decision of the Connecticut Circuit Court Judge Vanessa Bryant. The U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld Judge Bryant's uh, dismissal of the case, uh, dismissing the argument related to the independent contractor issue because of the expired statute of limitations, and also that there was no evidence that WWE knew and withheld information about head trauma or CTE. WWE lawyer Jeremy McDivitt is seeking court costs from his legal adversary, the lawyer Constantine Kairos, who was the uh, who was leading the class action lawsuit that included dozens of wrestlers, including Billy Jack Haynes, Road Warrior Animal, Paul Orndorff, Sabu, Ken Patera, Demolition, and many more. I think that's about all I have for this week. Uh, you can read my latest work at WrestleNomics.com. This week, I wrote about an issue I talked about last week. How maybe not just star power is what makes wrestling booms in the wrestling business. And how maybe the women's evolution was a missed boom opportunity. That's at WrestleNomics.com. Again, if you want to support the podcast financially, you can go to Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. You can sign up for a free trial of independentwrestling.tv using the promo code WrestleOnics, where you can now see the one and only event that both Brandon Thurston, me, and Chris Harrington, Mookie Ghana, uh, both appeared on. Did you know Mookie had a brief stint as a wrestling manager? Anyway, you can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter at WrestleNomics. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. And I'm Brandon Thurston, and I will talk to you again next time. Negotiate your guys' new CBA. Um, you have a CBA? No, but let's go. make one. Okay, you know what? <laughs> no, you know, things like this, we can we they work around it, but okay, it, it's fun though. It does become fun. Uh, and the bill's coming due. Uh, I'm going to be the person that does it, or the person that is there when it's done, uh, and it's going to give me great pleasure because, like I said, that people know I grew up a fan. I'm sick and tired of seeing my childhood heroes die early uh, and then not knowing whether their families had any reasonable means of support thereafter. Uh, I'm sick of having this feeling in my stomach where when you see these performers uh, put themselves on the line that some of them aren't getting what they deserve. Uh, And as a fan, we deserve better. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 